But if you're staying in the service, we're going to continue in our Lenten series. <clears throat> We've been looking at the so-called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are four, at least four songs in the book of Isaiah that describe this mysterious figure of a servant, the Lord's servant who is to come and to rescue us and to redeem the world. Of course, we know uh, from the other side of the cross that that servant is Jesus. The New Testament clearly identifies Jesus with this figure in Isaiah. And so every time we read and study one of these songs, we learn more and more about Jesus and who he is and what he has come to do and what he is yet to do for us. So today we're looking at the second part of the second song. So we're split up every song into two parts so that throughout Lent we cover all four of them. So we're looking at Isaiah 49, verses 7 through 13. So let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture, and they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is God's word. So I'd like to divide our text into three parts. Uh, verse 7, the first verse here in our passage, uh, we will see an exalted servant. Secondly, in verses 8 through 12, the majority of our, our passage, we'll see a gathered church. And then finally, thirdly, in verse 13, we will see a jubilant world. So an exalted servant, a gathered church, and a jubilant world. In verse 7... This is the Lord speaks to the servant, the Father speaking to the Son, God is speaking to Jesus, and he points out two realities, and both are true. First, he points out that in his earthly life, Jesus was deeply despised. He was abhorred by his own people, and he was oppressed by those in power. Now that's obviously true. Anybody who's read the accounts of Jesus' life would agree with that. He was rejected, misunderstood, slandered, falsely accused, betrayed, and ultimately abandoned by everyone. Now, in particular, he was a problem to those in authority. Both the Jewish and the Roman authorities hated him. The Sanhedrin, the top religious council of Judah, 
devised a plan to put Jesus to death. That's what kind of set that whole process into motion where the priests who, who were threatened by Jesus were jealous of him. And so they decided to put him to death, accused him of blasphemy, put him through a pretend court, and finally they sentenced him. Now, of course, they couldn't do it on their own, so they had to, they had to talk to Pilate, the Roman official, and then Herod, the local king, also played a role. But as a result, everybody went along with this plan, everybody in authority, and all, it all led to Jesus' crucifixion. So that's the reality of his life, and Isaiah talks about it. And in the servant song, we read that Jesus was deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, and the servant of rulers. But then there's the second part, and this is important, that both are here together, side by side, giving us a pattern. Secondly, the Lord says that one day, all will acknowledge Jesus' authority. One who was lowly and despised and rejected and put to death one day will be vindicated and will be put in the position of authority over all the kings and all the lords. In fact, kings will rise in reverence. Now, kings and queens don't rise for anybody unless they feel inferior to them. But here in the prophecy, kings will rise in reverence and princes shall prostrate themselves in submission. That's the prophecy. Well, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everybody in creation who has any sort of authority will bow down to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will be revealed as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, both are true, despised and humiliated in his earthly ministry, but then vindicated in his resurrection, exalted high at the right hand of the Father, ruling the world, and yet one day will be acknowledged by all as this Lord and King of all creation. Now, this pattern, there's a pattern here, pattern of humiliation followed by exaltation, and it's guaranteed by the Lord's faithfulness. It tells us that all this will happen because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen Him, chosen Jesus for this work. The servant, humiliated but then exalted, is, is not, it's not an accidental pattern. The divine design of Christ's mission includes humiliation followed by exaltation. And in fact, Isaiah says this is a sign of God's faithfulness, that it happened that way is how it was supposed to happen, and it happened because the Lord faithfully devised it to happen this way. Jesus Christ first humiliated, then exalted, first rejected and despised, but then glorified, first condemned, but then vindicated, first crucified, but then risen. Now let's make it personal. This is what Jesus says, this humiliated but then vindicated servant. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 20, verses 24 through 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Now that's talking about us. 
If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus tells you that you are not above him. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. We're supposed to follow Jesus and accept the same pattern that he lived through. If they have called the master, this is Jesus speaking again, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, so if they called him a demon, how much more will they malign those of his household? So if they slandered Jesus, if they humiliated Jesus, if Jesus was suffering unjustly, we should expect the same because a disciple is not above his teacher. And a servant is not above his master. Those who follow Jesus must participate in the same pattern that he experienced. Now listen to Paul in Colossians 3. The same idea here. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. First you die, and your life is hidden in Christ. And then when he appears, you appear with him in glory. Same pattern, humiliation and vindication. We must die with Christ and then we rise with him. That's what it means to be his disciple. We follow him into suffering and then into glory. And the Lord is faithful in both. That is actually what he's doing. That is actually the right pattern. Now let's make it practical. By accepting this pattern as normal for a Christian, you and I will be able to avoid two very dangerous states. On the one hand, we will be able to avoid bitterness and resentment in suffering. As you suffer, the temptation is for the suffering to crush you. For the suffering to change you, to make you bitter, to make you resentful, to make you complain, to make you hard-hearted. But if you remember that the Lord promised to restore and reward you, then you can deal with your bitterness and resentment. As Christ rose from the dead and was honored, so will you be honored. Even as you suffer now, that's only part of the pattern. The rest of the pattern that you will be exalted, you will be honored, you will be rewarded, you will be vindicated, just as Jesus is. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 By accepting the pattern of Christ, suffering and exaltation, humiliation and vindication, we actually can have hope and suffering and resist bitterness and resist resentment, resist being broken by it. That's one dangerous condition we can avoid if we remember the pattern. On the other hand, that's the other side of it. We will be able to avoid disillusionment and disappointment in suffering. Not just bitterness and resentment, but also disillusionment and disappointment in suffering. 
You must remember that suffering is not a surprise. Jesus called you to take up your cross and follow him. That's the call to discipleship. That's part of the call, is to take up your cross and follow him. Suffering naturally leads to disappointment with God when we think God is supposed to keep us from pain. And when we are hurt, we conclude that God has failed us. If you assume that God has promised to keep you from pain, that God is not going to allow you to suffer, then when you suffer, you will naturally think that God has failed you. But if you accept the pattern of Christ, whom you are called to follow, whom you are called to imitate, whom you are called to become like, if you accept the pattern of Christ, you begin to see that your suffering is part of God's faithfulness and not His failure. One of our greatest problems is attributing to God promises he never made and then expecting him to keep them and at the same time ignoring promises that God did make and failing to trust him to stay true to his word. There are so many Christians that assume that God said something that he never said and then we attempt to hold him to that promise that he never made. And we conclude, God must not love me. God must have abandoned me. God must have betrayed me. And then the other side of it is, we fail to trust the promises that he did make. And trust his word and and actually see his faithfulness in it. And rely on that and rest in his promises and go through suffering without disillusionment and disappointment on the one hand and resentment and bitterness on the other hand. Root your life in Christ himself. Base your life, your understanding of life, in Christ himself because he is our pattern. If you are called to follow him, you are called to become like him. You are called to live like him. You are called to see life and death and resurrection the way he saw it, the way he experienced it. As he suffered, so must we suffer in this world. But as he will be exalted above all and reign in glory, so will we be glorified with him. Both things are true, and we have to keep them as a pattern for our own lives. Now that's the exalted servant. It gives us that pattern. And then this pattern is developed and illustrated in this vision of the church that is gathered from afar and is accepted back into God's kingdom. So this next section, verses 8 through 12, really illustrate the same principle, but focus on the future exaltation of God's people. It gives us hope. It shows us the future. Now Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So Jesus prayed for something. Jesus cried out to God for something. In his suffering, in the first part of that pattern, as he was humiliated, as he was slandered, as he was abandoned, he cried out to God. And Hebrews tells us that God heard him. Because of who Jesus is, God heard him and answered him. And this is what Isaiah is talking in verse 8 in our passage. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. 
The Lord is responding to the servant, and he's saying, I heard your plea. Now the question is, what was Jesus pleading for? What, is, what was he praying for? What is he asking for? Now in the Hebrews 5 context, Jesus is presented as our high priest, pleading for the people of God. What he's actually praying for and what God says he heard him and what he answered him is in the context of his prayers for us, for his people. As Jesus was suffering, and we know that from other accounts in the Gospels, as he was suffering, as he was dying, he was praying for us. He was pleading with God for us. And the Lord heard those prayers, he heard those cries, and he answered him, so that through his suffering, through his sacrifice, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's Hebrews 5, a little bit later in that passage. Now look at the rest of verse 8 in Isaiah 49. The Lord says that he has answered the servant, and now he makes him a covenant to the people. So the answer to Jesus' prayers, his prayers of agony on the cross, the answer to those prayers is that he is made our covenant. He is made our peace treaty. He is made our agreement. He's, he is made our deal between us and God. Jesus who died, Jesus who in the first part of the pattern suffered for us unjustly, is accepted by God as our covenant as the mediator, as somebody who can bring us and God together. So as we follow Christ and participate in this pattern of suffering and exaltation, we share in all the benefits of that suffering and that exaltation. In other words, verse 8 tells us that the point of the servant's death and resurrection is to restore us back to God, is to reunite us, reconcile us, bring us back into a relationship with God. And Jesus, in his very person, the crucified and risen Jesus, in who he is, with both sides of that pattern, has become our covenant. So that our connection to him, our union with him, our attachment to him by faith, actually reconciles us with God and restores us to the position of acceptance and blessing with God. And this is how Matthew Henry put it. All the duty of the covenant is summed up in our being His. And all the privilege and happiness of the covenant are summed up in His being ours. So he takes what's ours. And so when he suffers, he suffers for us, unjustly, but for us. And then when he is exalted, he pulls us up and he takes us all the way to God. And because he is the beloved of God, we become his beloved. Because he is accepted with God, we are accepted with God. And then Isaiah gives us these two wonderful metaphors to help us understand what we gain through this covenant in Christ. What it looks like, what it feels like for us to be, through Christ, connected to God again. 
Now, the first metaphor is the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. I have to explain that. When Isaiah uses a phrase like, in a time of favor, in verse 8, this is specific language that is reminiscent for every Israelite, reminiscent of this idea of a 50th year of Jubilee. Remember, Israel lived on this sabbatical cycle, right? Every seventh day is a Sabbath. Every seventh year is a sabbatical year where the land rests, where people are blessed. God provides for them. They rest in His promises. Now, the cycle continues until it hits the 50th year, which is sort of this, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths, right? You've gone through all these cycles, and you get to the 49th year is, is your seventh Sabbath, and then the 50th year is this, this, this great celebration, great year-long celebration of God's provision in the land. And this is what God commanded His people to do in Leviticus 25, verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year, Set it aside. Now, what is supposed to happen during this year? And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. So every 50th year, all Israelites were forgiven their debts. Those who were slaves, who had become slaves or servants because of their poverty or indebtedness, were now released in that year. And those who had sold or lost their land were now restored to their inheritance. This is, I mean, this is an amazing idea that actually can work in society, by the way. And it was supposed to work in Israel, except they didn't do it. But the idea is that Every 50th year, there is a restoration. There is a release of captives. All the debts are forgiven. And the land, this, this, this tribal land, right, that's given every clan, every tribe had their own piece of land. And you couldn't lose it. Now, you can give it up for maybe up to 49 years, but that 50th year, it was going to be restored back to your family. Now, it tells you about how God sees his people, Right? God built in these provisions so we wouldn't lose his gifts, so they we wouldn't really stray and leave him, so we wouldn't get so bogged down in debt and poverty that we wouldn't be able to recover. That's the year of Jubilee. So when in verses 8 and 9, this, these ideas are brought up, we have to be thinking about this idea. The Lord promises to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. He's returning the land to those whom God had given it, saying to the prisoners, come out. So if you were in prison, you were released. If you were indebted, you were released your debt. To those who are in darkness, appear. Come out of the darkness into the light. This, this is a wonderful metaphor, this year of Jubilee, where everything is forgiven, everything is restored, Everybody recovers. Everybody returns to their, to their inheritance. And so what Isaiah is doing here is he is proclaiming the ultimate year of Jubilee in Christ. Because when Jesus comes, and to all who claim the servant, who claim him as their covenant, 
They will have their inheritance restored. They will be released from prison. They will be called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, people go into darkness to find themselves, right? But the Lord calls us out of darkness into the light to find him. There's this cosmic year of jubilee where you're dead to God, this cosmic debt, or what Diane was talking about, this cosmic treason, right, is forgiven. We can return home in Christ, become part of God's family, be adopted into his home. We can claim our eternal place in God's new creation. Nothing short of that is promised here, nothing less. What was, what was given to us as a prediction, as a hint, as a prophecy in this establishment of the year of Jubilee every 50th year is now fulfilled in Christ on a cosmic level. The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 49, 8 in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, 1, through 1 and 2. Now it tells you how the church reads Isaiah, Right? It tells you what the Apostle Paul does with Isaiah because he's looking at these passages and immediately he thinks of Christ. Immediately. And he's making all these connections to us today to take these promises from Isaiah and use them for us today. So Paul quotes Isaiah 49.8 in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. And he says, working together with him. Now he's talking about Christ. He just talked about Christ who for our sake was made sin so we in him might become the righteousness of God. That's the previous verse in, in, in chapter 5. So working with him, with this servant who came to suffer for us so we can be exalted in him, the same pattern, working together with him, Paul says, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, God says, quoting Isaiah, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. It's right now, he says. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says, don't ignore this grace that's given to you. Don't waste this time. He says, the year of Jubilee has come and it's right now. Your debts are released right now if you turn to Christ. You return home right now if you turn to Christ. You claim your inheritance right now if you come to Christ. Now is the day that you can trust Him. Now is the day when He can be your covenant and He can reconcile you to God. So don't waste today. If you're not a believer, turn to Him today because now is that time. The trumpets have sounded, and the year of Jubilee has begun in Christ. That's the first great metaphor that it gives us. The second is the return from exile. Now, if you read the rest of this passage, you will find that the imagery that's used is the imagery of the people coming home. People who had been taken out of their land, they're now returning, right? And there's this long journey home. Now, we know that Judah was taken over by Babylon, and the people who survived the invasion were taken into exile. Now, it was part of God's discipline. We know that this wasn't just Babylon doing what they wanted. This was God-ordained. 
God disciplined his people for their idolatry, the injustice there, not keeping Sabbath, by the way, not keeping the year of Jubilee and taking advantage of the land. The land needed rest. So God allowed Babylon to take him out. And Babylon took him into exile. And then we know that the other part of this pattern is exaltation and restoration. So they were returned back to the land. The Lord promised to bring them back from Babylon. And it happened. It happened under Nehemiah and Ezra. There were lots of people, lots of Jews from Babylon who came back. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. So that by the time of Jesus, there are Jews in the land again. Now there's other pagans and Rome rules and all that is happening. But God had returned his people back to their land. Now this is the imagery that Isaiah is using of people coming home from exile to help us understand what kinds of blessings we receive in Christ. Now the imagery is specific to Israel, but right away we see that the scope is much greater. Now look at verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Now Syene is most likely southern Egypt. It's probably south. Nobody really knows, but it's probably south. So we have the directions of north, I'm going to go your way, west and south, right? The problem is that Israel is in Babylon, which is east. So the only direction that's not mentioned is east. Telling us that this ingathering of people is going to be far beyond Israel. God is actually going to gather all his people from all over the world. The Jews and the Gentiles are going to come home to God. Now, it's, it's the ultimate homecoming that's, that's in view here. And the Lord promises that he will bring all of his people home. And that he will provide along the way. That we wouldn't get lost. That he will protect us. That he will make a way. That he would raise the roads so you never get lost. You can always see where you're going. And it will be level ground. And he will give us water and food along the way. He will bring us home. Because we are his, and we belong with him forever, and he's not going to let us be lost. Now, isn't it wonderful to know that no matter what the obstacles are, no matter how long the journey takes, no matter how difficult it feels sometimes, we will make it home. We will make it home because God is faithful all of this is based in his faithfulness to us. That great universal human longing for home will finally be satisfied. Now, I was thinking this week, and I was thinking, man, how many stories are written about somebody just trying to make their way home, right? I mean, so much of human literature is about that. It's about looking for home being separated from your home and then finding it, sometimes in a surprising place, working through all the obstacles to get there. Now, the reason we write those stories and sing those songs is because there's something in our heart that tells us this isn't home. We belong somewhere else, and we must get there to be whole. And that drives us. So C.S. Lewis famously describes it this way. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, 
to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside? He says all this is, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. This is Lewis putting in, in, in beautiful words what we all feel, that something isn't right. I am not at home here. I can't rest here. I'm not content. It must be somewhere else. I must belong with someone else. There must be some other world which fits me better. And so Isaiah, through the song of the servant, says, yes, yes. And there will be a homecoming. And if you are in Christ and if the servant is your covenant, he will bring you home. Because all this will be restored. All this will be remade. And when we finally are at rest in eternity with God and the new creation, we will finally say, yeah, <laughs> this is home. This is what I've been looking for. This is what feels right to me. Finally, because of Jesus, his suffering and his exaltation, he will bring us home. Now, we finally get to verse 13, which seems totally appropriate following what we just learned. When you think about these things, our natural response is to sing, is to praise him, is to enjoy him. And so naturally, there's a call to all creation to rejoice. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth the mountains into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The whole creation is called to rejoice because of the servant's suffering and glory. Now you see, Christ's work <clears throat> extends to the whole creation. Everything will be renewed under his rule. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And God's redeemed people will live and reign with him forever. And everything will rejoice. Joy will be the mark of the new creation. There will no longer be tears or pain or sorrow or death. All that prevents us from rejoicing will be gone, so we will fully rejoice. And the whole creation will function the way it's supposed to be. And so we will hum, because it will work the way it's supposed to. Now listen to Paul reflecting on this reality in Romans 8. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's the first part of the pattern, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the second part. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation has been longing and anticipating and groaning for the revelation of God's people for the homecoming of God's people, 
for Christ to finally be exalted over all authorities and be acknowledged by all as their king and their Lord. And when it happens, the heavens will sing for joy, the earth will exult, and the mountains will break forth into singing. Now, instead of explaining it more, I'd like to just list some images to help you feel the joy that is promised to the world in Christ. So I want you just to listen to me, right? Don't take notes, please. Just listen and connect with these images that are all familiar to us. Some are going to be more familiar to some than others, but these are all our regular experiences of joy now. And as you think about it, my goal is not to help you understand. My goal is to help you feel. I want you to feel what's coming in Christ for you. I want you to feel the kind of inheritance that he's prepared for you, that kind of jubilant world that he's going to make for you. So think about these things, okay? Think about a soldier returning home from war, welcomed by his family. Now connect to the joy, the joy of reconciliation, the joy of welcome, that exhale of his safe and his home. Now think about that moment, maybe in your own experience, of realizing when your first baby is about to be born and you're anticipating. There's that joy of anticipation from the very first time that you realized that you were pregnant. And as the baby grows, there's anticipation and joy that grows. Now think about the birth of that baby. That first look in her eyes, that first smile, first steps. Graduations and weddings and all the moments of parental joy when you see your child grow and become somebody you are proud of. Now think about first strawberry in a new garden, that very first strawberry and the joy that comes with it. I bet you you want to sing a song when you find it, don't you? Think about a wedding day and a wedding night and the delight and the joy that comes with it. Think about a just verdict in court. You see these pictures of people crying with joy when justice has been served, right? And sometimes it's a verdict of not guilty. Somebody acquitted and declared innocent because they were innocent. And it's acknowledged now publicly, and there's no sentence on them anymore. But sometimes it's justice served well, and a great evil punished, and there's rejoicing that justice works. Think about a great victory like Argentina winning the World Cup, right? Or... Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl. Think about the, the jubilant joy of the supporters and the fans. I mean, you look at those pictures, and there's something special about Argentina, by the way. Everybody on the streets, right? There's this overwhelming joy at their victory. Think about a runner breaking a record, crossing the finish line, and the look at his face. 
You know, there's the, there's the face of joy, right? It's completely content. There's nothing else to do in this life, right, at that moment. Think about hugging a friend whom you haven't seen for many years, and you are finally reconnecting with them, and they are well, and they still love you, and you still love them. Now connect to that. Connect to that, that, that touch that gives you joy. Think about a proclamation, maybe a proclamation of independence of a country and the joy that comes with, with that resolution of a, of a years-long, decades-long, centuries-long slavery and oppression and finally the country is free. Or think about a proclamation that frees a whole class of people from slavery like happened in this country and the, the jubilant joy that comes with it. Think about quenching of thirst after a long journey where you had no water. If you go hiking and you run out of water and then you finally you get to, to your car and you can have that first drink of water. Think about that experience. That's the joy that is promised to us. Thinking about seeing a hummingbird for the first time. Not for the first time this year, but for the first time ever. I mean, what, what an amazing creature makes you feel different about the world. Think about the first time you tasted Indian food. I mean, what an experience. What a joyful thing. You, you didn't even know those flavors existed in this world, right? Think about a farming community that is receiving rain after a long drought, and everybody's out, and, and they let rain fall on them because they're welcoming that grace. And now the food will grow and life will be here once again. Think about a doctor calling you into his office and saying, you are now cancer-free. The treatment worked. There's not a cell in your body that isn't wrong in some, somehow. It's, it's right. It's happened. You're fine. I mean, the, these are the experiences now that are they're hints and glimpses, right? Because they, they don't last and there's so many other things you can think of that right away dispute that joy. But this is the kind of stuff that the Lord promises for us to have forever. Because when He comes and He remakes this world, right? He's, he's not going to leave you without those experiences. He'll just give you more of them and He'll give you the consistency, in fact, the eternity of them and many, many, many more. Because there will be no sorrow, no death, no regrets, no suffering, no pain. All of that is gone. And all you have is this kind of joy, this kind of wonder, this kind of jubilant world. So imagine that. We can imagine it. We can go based on those experiences and we can imagine it. And as we do, remember, this is your inheritance. This belongs to you by right if you are in Christ. He is your covenant. He earned it for you, and he is happy to share it with you. And when we get there, we will sing. We know we will sing, but the whole creation will sing in jubilant joy of Christ's new work.